This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. From music to maps, money and modernity, this is where ideas come to life. Welcome to another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. Uh, I'm your host, Eric Jones, and uh, with me in studio is a very special guest and, uh, and friend and colleague, um, Dr. Judy Ledgerwood. Welcome, Judy. Hey, it's nice to be here, Eric. Yeah, it's great to have you. I mean, you know, for the listeners, uh, Judy is, if you if you love or don't love Crossroads, Judy's partially to blame. She uh, listened to my crazy idea to, we should start a podcast, and uh help support this initiative and yeah we've grown from there and so again thanks for that thanks for that and uh it was uh um yeah it's been it's been fun along the way to to little kind of a behind the music in an academic way for our to talk to our colleagues uh yeah well uh judy's been working um uh not, not just the past year but in her career over uh for cambodian um culture and history uh She's she's a specialist. So she's she's done a lot of work on on gender in Cambodia. Um, has really done important work on on the uh, rebirth of Buddhism after the after the Khmer Rouge. Um, and uh, she is also uh, going to tell us today about some important work that she uh, following along uh, with her mentor on following um, a Cambodian village across 60 years inside the maelstrom life in one Cambodian village across uh, 60 years. So maybe let's, let's start. Do you tell us about um, how you came across this project and, and, and maybe your, your mentor um, May Ibihara is a place to start. Who, who, who is this? So May Ibihara as a cultural anthropologist uh, trained at Columbia university and she was uh, working on her PhD dissertation and conducted ethnographic research in Cambodia in 1959-60. How many how many people were doing that kind of work in Cambodia at the time? It has to have been um, small, right? No one. <laughs> she she was the f- she was the first American anthropologist to conduct ethnographic research. The only one to do so before the war, and she was one of only three anthropologists uh, total who did ethnographic research in a Cambodian village before the war. The other two were uh, Gabrielle Martel, uh, who did uh, uh, ethnography on a village up in Siem Reap, and then Malata Kalab, uh, who never wrote up her research, but did uh, did publish some articles, did some research before the war. But that's it. There were uh, there was really no one. And uh, I guess without, without spoiling the story too much, um, uh, her work would become so important because of the sort of the the crisis and and wars that would affect so de- so deeply Cambodia and a kind of a, a the year zero effect that that um, uh, May and, and others had, had been one of the chroniclers of of Southeast Asia before of of Cambodia before year zero and so is is do you think um, uh, I can't think of another context where this kind of is. It's almost salvage ethnography. Is it? It's a, It's a, It's such a weird thing where she's this this life way that um, that almost disappeared in a certain way, and, um, and she yeah, was she, able to capture. But she was doing. Uh, she was really doing old school 
um, ethnographic research that was already kind of going out of fashion in by 1960, where an ethnographer goes and lives in one village for an extended period of time and tries to cover everything about daily life in that place. So her her ethnography includes um, she had a focus on kinship and social organization. Uh, but also agriculture and uh, different race varieties and agricultural methods, um, sexual division of labor in agriculture, um, Buddhism, um, political structure, uh, kinship terminology. Uh, so all of those different uh, kind of a holistic view of one single place. And that's, as you say, that's why it became so important because uh, in the devastation that was to follow when people look back at pre-war um, Cambodian life, here was this record of uh, what what one place had been like. So it became something she never intended, right? It became a kind of touchstone piece of a typical village, even though she says herself, you know, there's no such thing as a typical village. But that's what people had to uh, draw on. Right. That's. Uh, I mean, yeah. What a what a what a legacy. Did did uh, when did uh, um, when did Professor Ibihara pass away? Two thousand five. Did she have a sense of how? Um, important that legacy was at the time? Oh, absolutely. I yeah. mean, she ended up, um, when Cambodia opened again, and she was able to go back. So for, for between uh, when she left in 1960, she had she wrote a couple of times, but really once things went, uh, uh, went awry in Cambodia, she had no contact and wasn't able to go back until 89. And then um, when the country opened up again and some of us younger scholars began were able to go, she really became a mentor for us, uh, myself, but other people like um, John Marston and Tony Shapiro, and that we um, uh, relied on her guidance for um, getting our own work started. And what we're what we're talking about in in we're talking about Cambodia, but we're really talking about the village of Sfai. Is that uh, um, now? Give us give us a kind of a, a context, where is this, what kind of a place was this um, when uh, my, and then you, later you and my were there? Right, so um, uh, Swai, at the time that May did her, Dr. Ebahara, I should call her, I call her May, um, did her original research in uh, 1959-60, it was 30 kilometers south of the southern border of the city of Phnom Penh. And, so um, lots of uninterrupted Yes, rice, just rice paddy. Rice between. paddy, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and and the city has uh, ex- continued to expand ever since and is almost now, it's only two kilometers away. But in 1959-60, it was primarily a, um, a rice agriculture village, self-sufficiency, self-sufficient rice agriculture. They produced most of what they needed. And uh, there was some wage labor, but it was primarily in the dry season when men had... Lo- fewer agricultural tasks, they would go into the city and, and ride Ciclo, um, pedicab drivers, or maybe work in construction. Uh, but otherwise, uh, but, most people were But that was considered kind of off-season, um, short-term work, that, 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 but the main work was agricultural. Yes. In, they, they, called, the they referred to themselves as Nesrai, so people of the rice fields. Okay, so their, their identity was there. Um, Sfai means uh, mean mango. It means mango. Is, were there were there mango groves there? There there is there are some mango trees there, but it was there's a story okay, uh, that okay. um, there was a king who was traveling out through the countryside and he stopped to rest in the shade of a mango tree um, okay. in the village, and that's how they got that's how it took the name. Nice. Um, 
So so she she does lots of ethnographic field work in this kind of this fifty to sixty five or, or or this period um, pre sixty five um, that become on later to become so important. Um, what is happening? I mean, some of our listeners might know. You know, nineteen sixty five might spark some some question marks in, in in Indochina. Of course, the the U.S. involvement in 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 Vietnam is is expanding. Um, what else is happening in sixty five in terms of Cambodia and 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 beyond that would have such effects? You know, a decade later in um, in villages like Sphai. Right. So people remember the period from when she was there, fifty nine sixty until the end of the 60s, really almost to 1970 in the coup as, as you know, the golden age, that um, yeah. um, they owned their own land, um, uh, they were able to um, earn a decent living. But then in the late 60s, um, things began to fall apart as the Vietnam War spills over into Cambodia. And um, Sihanouk had uh, really walked this very fine line in the Cold War, where he uh, played the U.S. off against the Soviet Union and China, and so got aid from both sides. Royal, royal family of Cambodia, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. King Nordam Sihanouk. Yeah. Actually, he steps down from being king and becomes prime minister, uh, but uh, his right. uh, uh, his government, Sankom uh, Yum, was. Um, uh, really the, the only the only political game in town, right? He dominates Cambodian politics in this period. Uh, in the late 60s, as the war overflows, and then there's um, the U.S., there's the end of U.S. aid and a downturn in economics, and uh, both the right and the left are resentful. And uh, he had, um, in the early days, uh, managed to keep both sides involved in his government, right? So... There are urban protests, and he uh, strikes out against the leftists. They run off into the forest, into the Maquis, and uh, plot the revolution. And the right, uh, in 1970, end up sponsoring a coup uh, with support from the Americans um, that overthrows um, Sihanouk and brings Law Nall to power and the establishment of the Khmer Republic. Right, and uh, not coincidentally, um, Law Noel and the Khmer Republic, they immediately um, call a halt to, to um, Vietnamese, North Vietnamese incursions into Cambodia, and they're, they're you know, this is, uh, this, is, this is orchestrated as part of the sort of U.S. strategy for, it had been, now the U.S. had been in, had been going into Cambodia uh, before 1970, but it's a real escalation, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and bombing... Uh, of course, the bombing of Cambodia, if you think about what, what brought about Richard Nixon's downfall, it was Watergate, but it was also uh, the secret bombings of Cambodia. Um, so yeah, the, yeah, students the, were at Kent State angry about um, invasions of Cambodia. Right. Um, so, so there's extensive uh, bombing into Cambodian territory and then eventually an invasion with American and South Vietnamese forces into Cambodia to try to eliminate... Um, Vietnamese outposts or Vietnamese uh, bases that they expected to find in Cam- inside Cambodia. Uh, the I, I think on on this podcast and on a uh, teaching edition that I'll re- would have the listeners go uh, to where Dr. Ledger would have some great resources. But um, for me, somebody's just listening to this episode, just a quick thumbnail of what is the, what is the scale of 
the U.S. bombings in in uh, the carpet bombing campaign? Oh gosh, I don't think I have any statistics at the ready. Um, but it's mil- millions of times more than more than in more than was used in, in Germany in World War II. Yes, that's often cited. Um, Which is why they, a country we were not at war with. Yes, and and um, they and it goes they go. Uh, progressively further and further from the border and into the country. Um, they're not stopping the movement of arms down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And uh, they right. keep uh, they keep thinking that if they just do a bit more, you know, they'll get to those um, um, North Vietnamese bases or they'll get to those supply lines. And so they bomb more and more extensive areas. And then once the, um, once the coup has occurred in 1970... And uh, we are allied with the Khmer Republic, um, the, the Cambodian communist movement, those people who'd gone into the forest um, that Sihanouk dubbed um, the Red Khmers, the Khmer Rouge. Um, they are supplied by the North Vietnamese and backed by them in those early days. And they're um, uh, fighting and gaining more and more area. So the bombing is also directed at them uh, to try to stop that expansion of their control. So there's a civil war between 70 and 75. That's Law and Nall and the Khmer Republic in the cities, and then the uh, uh, Khmer Rouge and Vietnamese forces in the countryside. How, um, the, I, I'm thinking about Svai in, in this period leading up to, to 75, and, and, and you, you've been back, or you've been there many times. Um, what what did they say? Those who were can remember um, the the did the were the carpet bombings the hits by um, are they did they were they did they flee to like many did to to like Phnom Penh and and big, the, the cities? What yes. what was their experience in Spy? Like yes, there was in t- uh, extensive bombing in the area in 1972 and 1973, but um, the people had already fled. So there, um, this is a was an active battlefield. So the Khmer Rouge were coming up from the south, from Takayo, and the Lan Nol forces um, encircling the city of Phnom Penh to defend the city were right in that area. So, um, right. Ameri- and the Americans bombed um, uh, starting in 72, but very heavily in 73 until the funding is pulled. There we have the bombing, the maps now. These have been released by to researchers through Freedom of Information Act, and we have um, maps of uh, the bombing of this area. But uh, the the residents of Swai were gone, um, there, and there were um, combatants in the region. So most people fled into Phnom Penh, and some of them had family they could live with. Some were in sort of displaced person camps. Uh, some were just living as they could along roadways, it was a very desperate time, so there were some two million people that flooded into the city, and there wasn't enough food. Um, the Americans got food aid in by bringing it on barges up the river from Vietnam, and eventually, as the Khmer Rouge encircled the city, uh, they couldn't get the barges in, and they just brought in airlift food by airlift. Um, and the other, uh, there were some people as well who went south instead of into Phnom Penh, went and joined the Khmer Rouge. Um, sometimes this was by capture. So um, I know the guy was out working in the fields one day and 
Khmer's force patrol just comes out of the bushes and grabs him and takes him off to the south. Uh, yeah, is in, he like a porter then or something? Or yeah, that, you sh- yeah. Um, some people who were captured, young people especially, could may, might be made to join the armed forces. But yes, they could be used for just agriculture, for growing food. Um, and then some in some areas they would come in in the night and take a whole family. And in some cases, uh, families may have gone to the south and joined. Maybe they had relatives who had already joined the Khmer Rouge. Or maybe they thought it was better to take their chances by joining the Khmer Rouge rather than to go into the city. They didn't know people in the city. They didn't know how they would live there. So it was a, a mix. But of the people that that May knew uh, from before, there was only one family that uh, was ba- were base people, um, people who were not evacuated from Phnom Penh in 1975. And that was uh, an older couple who... Uh, had gone into Phnom Penh, and then they went uh, to visit relatives in Udong, which is north of Phnom Penh. And then uh, the Khmer Rouge overran Udong and evacuated those people out um, before 75. So when 75 happens, they were already out there. So um, everybody else that she knew uh, in, after uh, April 17, 1975, when the Khmer Rouge take over, they were all categorized as new people, as um, city people, even though they had been farmers. Yeah, which is which, and 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 in a second, I'm going to ask you to tell our listeners what sort of what these what these designations of new people mean. But it struck me that like you know, and you made the point, there's no such thing as like one representative village like of all Cambodia. But but in some cases, the the also the experience of the residents of Svai of being kind of on their heels in an active battlefield and and, and fleeing and being in this in this vulnerable position, so that when the Khmer Rouge come to Phnom Penh and and evacuate the city, saying that not the implausible, you know, that, that the Americans are going to bomb the city, um, people people go, people they don't really have a choice, they they go, and so in some ways that their their story is also the story of of seventy five and beyond because they are. Um, they are they are displaced by w- the turmoil that's happening, and then and then they they get pushed on. So, what are the new people, and why is it kind of odd that the villages of Vi, um aren't uh, uh, aren't considered um, sort of good, o- you know, original kind of farm people? Right. So, um, because they fled into the city rather than going okay. south to join the revolution. Um, oh, they okay. are considered um, traitors to the revolution. So everybody, who, so the Khmerers take over April 17, 1975. They evacuate the city. Everybody who's coming out of the city gets this designation, new people or April 17 people. And people who were in areas that had already been liberated before that date are considered old people or base people and um, supporters of the revolution. And that distinction becomes very important across the next three and a half years because New people are the last ones to get food. They're given the most onerous tasks, and they're much more likely to be um, uh, chosen for um, execution. So uh, the the uh, the people of Swai, um, so they they have, uh, as you pointed out, their their houses. Everything was destroyed in battle. That's the first problem. Second problem is they get this designation, new people. And a third problem is that when they get back, so they're told to go to their home village. Everybody's told to go to their home villages. But when they get back there, there's nothing there. 
all the houses, all the crops, everything. So been they're, destroyed. when they're initially evacuated from Phnom Penh, they're told to go back to Svai. Yes, everybody's everybody who's leaving the city is told to go to their home villages. So they go back there, and there's nothing there, and then it's littered with unexploded ordnance. So they're they're moved to an area just south of the village, um, and they're um, told to camp there. It's, uh, they call it brai, they call it forest, but it's not like tall trees forest, it's scrub, right? So it's April, May, the middle of the hottest period. There's almost no food, there's almost no water, and they're, um, they live there. So in other places where people were told to go back to their home villages when they got back, there were people in these villages, and there was at least some food production, and so the, the people in those villages had to share their food with these newcomers who'd just come from the city. But in the ca- the people from Swai, they were just re- literally dumped in a field. And so that's why there's such a high death rate right away. Eleven people die in those first two months. How, yeah, what are the, what are the, what are the demographics of Swai? How, how big of a, how big of a place was, was May looking at um, in, in her time? Right, so she focused on West Swai Hamlet, the western part of a, of a larger village. Um, and there were 159 people in 30 households. Okay. And um, some people died um, because of the war and because of old age and so on. So that of the people she knew, there were 139 people in that group that were still alive on April 17, 1975. And uh, at the end of uh, the three years, eight months, and 20 days of the Khmer Rouge were in power, um, 70 of those people died. So a 50% death rate, which is higher than, you know, higher than other areas of the country. The total, you know, the estimates vary, but um, best uh, estimates used are around 2 million people died out of a pre-war population of between 7 and 8 million. So somewhere between... One in four and one in five Cambodians died in that time period, and so the, the rate for Swai is is definitely higher. Yeah, the um, that gives it maybe a flavor, and the the the, the, the rates are like a fourth of, of Cambodians are, are are dying in the in the um, democratic Cambodia. Um, from from your interviews and and her interviews, when when you're able to meet some of the families that are back what what do, what do they say what was daily life like for them in in revolutionary cambodia um we know some of the general terms but maybe some stories from Sphi that are particularly telling or interesting right so um after they uh were living in this field for a while they were finally allowed to move back into Sphi, and they were um divided up into work teams based on um, age and sex. Um, eventually there was communal dining, so you were not allowed to cook or eat food on your own. You had to eat in this communal dining area, just what you were given. Um, the, er, the, um, mainly it's um, talking about hunger and talking about just this heavy, heavy labor. And, and these are farmers. I mean, these are not people who, who didn't know how to do this work, right? In other areas, you hear stories. And there's a, um, a large collection now of first-person narratives that have been published in English 
that tell the story, and they're almost all stories from city people who got evacuated out from Phnom Penh to other areas of the country, and they have a hard time with plowing and <laughs> and other tasks. But you know, but uh, these people knew how to do those tasks, and yet they will still talk about um, the the how terrible the the work, constant work. You know, so getting up at dawn or before dawn and working until lunch, getting a short half hour break where you get some rice soup, rice porridge, and then another working again until dark. Uh, and then in some areas even being awakened and made to work um, with with hanging lanterns after it was dark. I mean, it's just constant labor. Was it, was it the, uh, they were, they were still growing rice in their same village, but it was, it the, was it the quotas that, that, that made it so unbearable as, as opposed to the, the time before? Right. So the other thing besides growing rice was digging irrigation systems. So all over the country, the Khmer Rouge mobilized people, especially young people, into these gong jalat, these uh, young worker teams, to dig. And uh, in this area was no exception. They built a fairly large irrigation system that took water from uh, the river and uh, out into fields. And, and it worked um, fairly well. Uh, in, in, uh, and that's another story that varies widely across the country. In some areas, they built these systems, and, the, and as soon as the rains came, they just washed away, right? If you just killed all the hydrologists and engineers, <laughs> it's, and then you try God. to build water systems. Uh, yeah. They were, they were um, in many places, they were just kilometer gr- square grids without consideration of the lay of the land. So Cambodian farmers who knew how to do right flood fields for rice agriculture and had Earth these and relatively and, yeah. small fields um weren't consulted right these were just uh like bureaucratic kind of right yeah. drew these big squares um but some of them did work and they were able to do multiple cropping they also pumped water from a, a lake to the south um and so uh that was one thing instead of a single wet season rice crop, they were doing double or triple cropping. So constant agricultural labor, in addition to the labor of actually constructing the canals. And then there was um, uh, not enough food. So they were producing more rice. And this is something that appears constantly in the narratives, right? If you listen to people's individual stories, they'll say, I I don't know where the rice went. Like, we produced we a lot of rice, yeah. yes, and it, and they put it in warehouses, and these trucks would come and take it away. And uh, so uh, they weren't giving an adequate diet to the population that was doing this work. And often it was just rice soup with nothing else. Sometimes it would have taguan, um, which is a, a green um, water vegetable, it's sometimes translated as um, morning glory, which I think is an inaccurate translation, but it's often called that in English. Okay. But it's a, a green leafy water vegetable. That would be in the soup. But then uh, not fish or meat. or, And so people suffered from severe malnutrition. Um, they joked once with Swai villagers and said, um, well, you're eating the taguan, and it's in the water, and the fish have swum by and brushed up against it, so surely you're getting the taste of the fish. It should be fine. <laughs> yeah, um, the, the, uh, the, d- the deprivation and the, the starvation and the, and the hard work, how many, how many are take, take their toll on um, 
SWI villagers, how many of them are brought in for sort of hardcore interrogation um, uh, who, who die in, in places like the infamous uh, tool slang S21 um, uh, interrogation centers? How, how many of, what, what is the fate of any of those take that path? Well, at S21 itself, I found only one, and he was not a resident of uh, West Y where May was doing her work, but he, he has an aunt who was living there. Um, uh, her sister actually lived in another in another nearby village. So that was his home, home village on paper or something? Uh, his home village was nearby, but he was in a kinship network that was that had okay. people in Swy. In Swy. Um, he was, um, you know, a rural kid makes good in the pre-revolutionary era and okay. went to college and uh, went to ag strike, school. Strike number one, he went to college. And yeah. he became a specialist on fisheries. And he was posted for a while down on the coast. He was a researcher and um, expert on uh, marine fisheries. And in uh, he, had, he had transferred back to Phnom Penh as everything was closing in. And then... Um, he was marched out of the city like everybody else, and then but then he was um, in one of these transfers. He was transferred up to the northwest, and um, then he was arrested and accused of being a CIA agent. And he was taken to S twenty one, and he was um, tortured and made to produce these um, lists of networks of you know co conspirators and other Amen. spies and. You know, uh, who did you recruit when you were in this area, and who did you recruit when you were in fisheries, and who did you? And it's just uh, when you read it, it's just all nonsense. You know, that's the way almost all the dual slang confessions are. Like the first one is usually the truth. The person says, um, you know, if they were inside the Khmer Rouge, they say something like, "I joined the revolution in this year. This person was my sponsor to join the revolution. I've always been loyal to the revolution. I don't know why I'm here." And after they're repeatedly tortured, and then they say things, yes, I'm CIA, I'm KGB, my, my mother secretly is really Vietnamese, you know, just these absurd things. And then they're killed once they've done the confession. So his his confession is, is quite short. You know, he gave these lists of other people that he had recruited, and then he was killed. So the, the, uh, the, the, the good thing about his file is that it's short. You know, he didn't have to endure very much before he was executed. Yeah, cuz people uh, people don't make it out of that facility basically. No, no. Um, there were there were 12 there out of uh, more than 18,000 people who were killed at S21, there are 12 known survivors and five of them were children who just happened to still be there when everything collapsed. Uh, and the others were um, artists uh, who knew how to paint and sculpt who were working on these uh, uh, images of Pol Pot. They were, um, you know, the Khmer Rouge had this, they just referred to the leadership as Anka, you know, the, the organization. And it was uh, the top leadership, the names of the top leaders was not even known. And, but clearly they were preparing to roll out a, um, a sort of cult of personality, I think, about Pol Pot because they were producing art of him. But to go back to, there's another part to that story, and that is that um, on the local level, there was also a an S uh, facility, this uh, security facility. Um, in Svai? Uh, just south of Svai, uh, but covering that area. And um, 
many people who went in there, most people who went in there didn't come out. Um, there was one uh, woman from Swai who was arrested and, and held there who um, survived and was released. Um, but um, she's the, uh, a person who, who really could never tell her story. It's like every time she tried to tell the story, she just couldn't, couldn't do it. Yeah, I can't. I can't imagine. Um, but the, the people who, um, several of the people who were executed. So p- besides people just starving to death and dying of overwork and illness, um, people who were actually executed included um, husbands of Swai women. So several Swai women had married urban men who had worked in the law and law government or had other um, higher status jobs in the city. Uh, one woman had married a, a high-ranking policeman. And so those people were um, marked and, and killed. The, the Khmer Rouge um, last, uh, um, what's the exact number? You said three, four years? Three years, eight, three yeah. years, eight months, and 20 days. But that's from... April 17th, 1975, until January 7th, which is the liberation day of um, of Phnom Penh. And several of the Swai interviewees point out that they were up in the Northwest and that it took months yeah. late beyond that before they were liberated. So um, four, four years, roughly four years. And uh, and the, the sort of the, the, the Vietnamese helped topple the, um, the Khmer Rouge and then the... Um the People's Republic of Kampuchea is formed in, in a, sort of a, a puppet government. Um, what? How do? Um, how did the Svai villagers describe this period versus um, Democratic Kampuchea? Well, they made uh, they made a point to say how grateful they were to the Vietnamese for having been saved, and they uh, very vivid descriptions of. Um, Right at the end, um, they get up one morning. They 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 can see uh, flashes of you know fighting. They know there's fighting in the capital, right? And um, uh, they get up in the morning, and the Khmerers are gone. The, and the so local, do, local the local people, yeah, armed army. The the yeah. the uh, Khmerish cadre that had been ov- their overlords for the, those previous four years are gone. And so they run out in the fields and start harvesting rice so they can eat it. <laughs> this is their first reaction. And, uh, and then um, the Khmerers come back. Oh. And, uh, try, and they're not the peop- people who had been with them. They're army. And they start to march them to the south. They're going to, because all over the country, as the Vietnamese advance, the Khmerers are retreating, but they're taking civilians with them so they can um, use them as labor. So they start to march them off to the south, and um, the Vietnamese are in pursuit. And so what the Khmer Rouge do is they take the civilians and they put them behind them so that if the, if the Vietnamese attack, they have to shoot these civilians first. And as soon as the Vietnamese overrun these positions where there are civilians, the first thing the Vietnamese do is put the civilians behind them. Wow. So really symbolic yeah. difference that... That, that, Instead uh, of human shields, they're being shielded. Protected. Yeah. And the second thing they do was, was give them food. And, and then they let them go 
home. They let them go back wherever they wanted. Um, so the description of that, when they got, uh, there's a lake, there was a big lake to the south. When they got to the shore of the lake, um, the the civilians had all been released or had been uh, freed by then. And so the Vietnamese cornered this group of Khmer Rouge up against the lake and killed them. If they couldn't swim, you know, wow. they killed them. So uh, they pr- they were prevented from having been dragged off. Um, some Swai survivors who had been moved up to the northwest were marched up into the mountains and kept and did um, labor for the Khmer Rouge um, for another several months. Well, for I didn't porters I, and right. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's fascinating. I mean we know the you know the broad the broad brushstrokes of of the kind of the political and military history or not, but it's it's these human stories of of what life was like for them when that when those things when those larger political events un, unravel that are I think are so important. Um, the 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 historian in me is thinking like future historians are going to think <laughs> uh, you and your colleagues and the and the the, the villagers who. Set down their uh, their oral, his, oral histories. So um, when do when do when do you and uh, May come back to um, Svai? Uh, not until 1989. So ten years after liberation. So during the uh, People's Republic of Kampuchea from 79 to 89, the country is still cl- very much close to Westerners. Um, is there are Russians there, and there's aid coming in from the Eastern Bloc. Um, but once the negotiations start that will eventually lead to the Paris Peace Agreement of 1991, so 88, 89, 90, then it begins to open just a bit. I finished my PhD in the fall of 89, September. I defended in early September of 89, and I was in Phnom Penh by the end of September of 89. The Vietnamese troops withdrew in September. Wow. So, like, as soon as I could get in, I went. Did, uh, had, uh, when did May go back? Was she, did she? I had actually been able to get to the village before she did. Um, we were on a trip that was going down to visit uh, Kian Swai, which is a, um, a little um, kind of tourist place south of the city, and uh, was able to convince the, to swing by Ministry of, <laughs> of yeah Ministry of Foreign Affairs people who were our minders that we could we should swing by, and just only stopped there for a few minutes, but went into this village and said, you know, do you know Maya Bahara? <laughs> Is this why? <laughs> Is this? And and uh, found people who said, yeah, of course we know her. Oh and, wow. Um, and uh, this one woman sort of chased after us and said, you know, tell her. Tell her that f- my children died. Tell her four of my children oh. died. It was just heart wrenching. So I was able to take the news back to her that at least some people had survived. And then she, it was this uh, spring of '89, I think, when she went for the first time. And um, it was, again, it was a very short visit. She was there with an SSRC delegation, but she was able to meet several people. And then sh- uh, in uh, 1998, in 1991, in the summers, she and I went and did okay. um, more extended research, and then went back in 94 and 96. So, um, obviously, there's a dramatic change uh, in, in everything in Cambodia um, in, in that period. Um, 
through the through the lens of SFI, um, what are what are some of the changes that um, I guess bring bring us up to to twenty twenty one? What are what are some of the uh, how has daily life evolved for them in this in this period post um, post ninety three uh, for for the villagers? Well, the biggest thing is there's peace. So um, uh, men weren't being conscripted to go off to fight in war. And uh, you could begin to get the rebuilding of uh, infrastructure. You got Western money coming in. There was aid that rebuilt roads and bridges and things like that. During UNTAC, there was demining. Um, SWAI had already been largely demined, uh, but there were other areas of the country where that was um, ongoing. And um, so safety, and security is huge. Yeah, yeah. And you could just you could go places. I mean, before that, you would try you'd go down a road and there would be a military checkpoint and you'd have to have papers and where were you going and so on. And so as soon once there's peace, you can um, you can travel. Um, and then f- uh, Western investment. So the statistics I gave during the talk um, that. Um, uh, garment factories begin to yeah, be built they really and explode, right? Especially on the southern reaches of Phnom Penh, which is very near to Swai. And so um, it's only, I think the 1994 figure was 18,000 people begin to work in garment factories in 1994. And then in 2017, there were, uh, there were 700,000 people wow. working in garment factories. So and that, it, that urban sprawl pushes towards Swai. Yes. And and it, is it is it attractive to many of the residents there? Yes, it's um, uh, many. It's mostly young women um, go to work in the garment factories in the '90s, and it's it's life changing because, um, again, as I said in the talk, um, if you are a, a young woman from Swai and you're going to work in the garment factory, this, there's these trucks that come through the villages nearby and pick them up early in the morning, still dark, 6 o'clock in the morning, still dark. You go work, uh, and you cu- the trucks bring you back 10 hours later, 12 hours later. It's dark when you get back after 7 at night. and uh, uh, But you live at home, so you don't have to pay for housing, and you don't have to pay for rice. Your family's growing rice. So whatever you earn in the factories, um, you get to contribute to the income of your family. So people bought pumps and they bought uh, mechanized walk-behind plows and they bought additional fertilizer. So they were really able to increase their agricultural yields um, because of... Through that supplemental urban labor. Yeah, so there was was a guy who who uh, I was talking to one day and he, he turned around, he pointed out towards his rice field and it just looked... Great. Like the rice was really heavy when it begins to bend over, you know, with the heavy yeah. uh, <laughs> stalks of uh, the seeds it's at the so top. Fertile, yeah. And and he said that's uh, because of my daughters. You know, he had two daughters working in the garment factories, and he said it's because I can put fertilizers, because I can buy these varieties, that I'm going to get this rice yield. But he said I worry about them every day. You know, they. I watch for the trucks to come to know mm. that they're coming back safely. Yeah, is is the uh, generationally and I mean, you know this from where you grew up. I do as well. That the 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 agricultural labor, um, the 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 pull is heavy away from that into 
into other fields, into uh, to, to other areas and into urban uh, spaces and other um, ways of making a living. Is that is that rapidly changing? Like Spy, are they going to move out of? Are they going to want to stay, come back, and the, the the children who are working in garment factories are they going to want to come retire and have work the fields while their kids go do that, or are they going to end up in the city? Yeah, so this is um, something that's very different from the way the pattern worked in Thailand. So in Thailand, uh, where there was this um, uh, factories much earlier in the 70s and 80s, um, women, young women would go to work in the factories in the cities at for maybe when they were 18 until they were 25 or so. There was just a... a a period, and then they would go back to the countryside. But what was happening at the same time was that development was happening in the countryside, right? So when they went back to their rural village, there was electricity, and they could buy a motorbike, and their dad bought a pickup truck, and, you know, it was everything. uh, It wasn't that um, economic development was floating all boats the same way, but life in the countryside was also changing, so in Cambodia, when these young women came in in the 90s and worked in the factories, if they went back to the village, there was no electricity or running water or, you know, why would you, why would you go back there if, uh, um, if you have machine the jet, you know, if you have air conditioning in the city or you have a, a fan or you have running water. And so uh, they came and worked in the factories and then they stayed and, and instead of stopping when they got married and had kids, um, in Swai, many women got married, had kids, and still worked in the factories, and their, their parents watched their grandchildren. That was when I began to see people doing bottle feeding, which was really striking. Wow. Uh, so, and, and even now, uh, there are women in their 40s and 50s who've been working in the garment factories for 30 years. Um, who are now in supervisory positions. They're not the ones at the sewing machines because they've been working there so long they uh, have risen to, to higher positions. Or there are people who have left and are now uh, back in the village taking care of their elderly parents or grandparents, and uh, I, their, their daughters are now working in the garment factories. Is the, is the overall population, how does it compare to um, pre uh, 1975 levels or maybe 1970 levels are there are there more more houses more people um, than there were then or is it still a a very small place there are more houses and more people than there were Um, it didn't grow dramatically Um, there weren't outside people coming in to live until very recently most of the time that I was doing research there through the 90s and 2000s, the, it was relatively stable because there were there was out-migration too. A lot of young people went into the city. And there was this phenomenon uh, that I uh, talked about in the talk of um, before, uh, when May was doing her research on kinship, there was a stated preference for a matrilocal marriage. That is, the man goes to live with the woman's side after marriage. And uh, I found that that uh, was happening now too, but that so these, uh, the women are staying in the village and working in the garment factories and mar- men are marrying, who are marrying them are marrying in. And then a lot of young men of the village married city women and moved into the city. Uh, and so also C- went to the wife's side. Not from Swai or, or city Yeah, women. not from Swai. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so going to the, the wife's side, as was the traditional pattern. 
right. but the, but Which remember the dynamic of, of urban yeah and and what's happening with land is that the land holdings are getting smaller and smaller so um, uh, pre-war um, uh, land holding patterns there were only a couple of people who had more than a more than a hectare uh, or had uh, there was like there was one person who had three hectares the richest guy in the village uh, but the People had relatively small holdings. And then coming out of the PRK when they did the land distribution, again, people, everybody, it became more evenly spread. Everybody got very similar, but it was low. It was like everybody had less than a hectare. And then uh, once private privatization of property, there's some buying and selling. Uh, but then when you get a real small, is this now we're a generation out from that land distribution in 1989 at the end of the socialist period, and people are dividing the land among their kids. And so the land holdings are very small, and um, that's why uh, kids, some kids have to, if some one, one brother's going to get the land, the other one's going to need to go do something else. Are they, are they leasing them out to each other to, have, to farm bigger properties, but that's divided up among, or are they land rent, or what are they, how does the Yeah, there's some, the um, work of that? A Cambodians call it brova, so you exchange, so you, uh, someone who's landless or someone who has a small amount of land works the land for someone else and gets to keep half the harvest. Sometimes that's someone who's moved into the city and still has land there. Right. Right. Um, so what, um, maybe just uh, to... In, in closing, what are tell us about some of the changes in um, maybe in higher education, and then um, to, to get very current in under under COVID, uh, what's what's happening in in Cambodia and places like Sly? Right. So one thing that I'm interested in, but I don't have data on, um, is uh, the last time I did extended research, I was there in 2010. I've done short visits since then, but. That's the t- the last time I had a sabbatical, right. and you had planned this whole year time. to be there. <laughs> I planned to be. The, I just planned to go for four months this last year, and then couldn't go yeah. because of the pandemic. But um, at that time, uh, one of the things that I had observed um, when everybody came back in '79 to the village that the pe- some of the people who really advanced then were people who had had some education before the war, because there was a desperate need for people who were literate and people who had education to go into leadership roles. Um, and so, uh, and then the school system got rebuilt in a rudimentary way in the 80s and in the 90s, but then um, there's this explosion in private universities in the 2000s. And so that's why people send their kids to... They want them to have that. Private universities, yes, they want them to have that. And so the question is now... If they were in college in 2010, now we're 11 years out from that. Where are they? And so that was one of the research questions that I had hoped to do and, and haven't didn't have a chance to do. Um, but in the, to go to the COVID part of your question, um, so Cambodian economic growth has been tied to um, tourism and the millions of people who come to see the Angkor uh, monuments every year. And so there were people who had kids who went up to Siem Reap and worked in the tourism industry or worked in the tourism industry in Phnom Penh. Then um, um, uh, the garments, which everybody, basically every household had somebody working in. Um, And then um, agriculture and um, 
people have are doing some rice agriculture. Some people, there was some migration to the northeast to, as they were logging up there, people moved into that area from other, from all over Cambodia to um, set up plantations, r- uh, rubber plantations, uh, pepper plantations. And then um, just very recently uh, in the Swai area, but more from up in the northwest, migration to Thailand for, for work uh, and sending back remittances. And um, the number on that from the talk, it was a 20... I can't remember, 2015 number, 2017 number, but it was uh, 900,000 Cambodians were legally registered to work in Thailand, which is just this huge number. But then the the estimates are that that's probably only about half the people who work in Thailand are are registered. registered. So it's actually even much higher than that. Uh, People who've gone to Thailand to do agriculture labor and fishing and all sorts of things. So in COVID, the Thais, right, through all, all the guest workers, and people have had to come back. And then tourism is completely shut. Cambodians not giving any tourist visas. And so that leaves um, the garment factories. And the, as there have been outbreaks in the factories, they have closed. And then as Cambodia has ramped up vaccinations, you know, they prioritize those workers. And so they've reopened the factories, but... Um, they don't get as many hours as they used to. Orders are down, and there's supply chain problems. And so um, many people are working, but not as much as they were before. So that combination of things. Does, does food scarcity enter the equation again for people? Well, and there was flooding uh, in the last two years as well. So I think yes, but again, I wasn't able to go. Right. I think around the country, um, people who had gone to the cities. And people who had gone to Thailand uh, have gone back to the farms. And so that um, strategy that I discussed in the talk of combining keeping the land, maintaining some level of rice production, and then having someone go into the city and get wage labor, that mix is what was making was working economically. So they've, um, they've gone back to try to rely on the, on the rice land. Uh, well, we're excited to to see not only these conclusions, but uh, the, the the compelling story when you're able to go back to uh, to Cambodia. If if people are interested, what are what are some things they should be uh, reading? So yours, May's, others that 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 um, are kind of uh, in this vein. Um, well, the uh, May's original ethnography was never. It was there as a doctoral dissertation. You could get a hold of it as a dissertation. Um, but it wasn't published as a book until 2018. So um, her original research book, and it's called, what the dissertation was called, it's called Swai, a Khmer village in Cambodia, uh, published by Cornell. And uh, Anthony, uh, Andy Murtha and I, he, uh, he's uh, edited uh, and helped clean up the, the and, and then I wrote a new introduction talking about the importance of the work for um, uh, the study of Cambodia. Uh, from then until now, so that's a that would be a right a good place to start. And then we a final chapter is, was added uh, that she wrote about memories of the Khmer Rouge, which was originally published in a in a book that I did here through NIU Press. And so that uh, there's my introduction on the front, and then that um, chapter at the end is added to the original dissertation. 
Right, and I guess of course, stay tuned for the uh, forthcoming volume. Yes, uh, <laughs> also also planned to be from Cornell. Yeah. Okay. Uh, great. Well, um, always a pleasure, uh, Judy, and uh, uh, come back again and uh, for the for the for the book launch, and um, we uh, we'd love to see you more. Great. Thanks, Eric. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Southeast Asia Crossroads. We would like to give thanks to Tantracoon for the use of his track, Electric Can, and a thanks to our audio producer, Amelia McCoy. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you tune in next time. <laughs>